Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 356 of the podcast. It is January 22nd, 2020. And my guest today is Amy C. Edmondson, PhD. She is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. She's the author of three books on teaming, and her most recent book is on the topic, uh, it's the topic of conversation today for the episode. Uh, Her book is titled The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. So today we explore what what I think is an incredibly important concept uh, of psychological safety. That's a phrase that means, as Edmondson defines it, quote, a climate in which people are comfortable expressing and being themselves. So in my view, in my experience, this is very necessary, the psychological safety. It's necessary for Kaizen or continuous improvement. And it's also a huge contributor. People need to be psychologically safe to be able to speak up about patient safety risks or other problems in the workplace. I've really, really enjoying her book. One thing I love about the book is that she doesn't just diagnose the problem, the idea that having fear... Of speaking up is bad, and we're not blaming the people who are afraid of speaking up. This is about leadership and culture. She also lays out a plan for how leaders can create a more psychologically safe environment and culture. That's really where it starts. Um, Edmondson received her PhD in organizational behavior, an AM in psychology, and an AB in engineering and design from Harvard University. So if you'd like to learn more about Professor Edmondson, and uh, her work and, and her books, you can go to leanblog.org slash 356. Well, again, we are joined today on the podcast by Amy Edmondson. Amy, thank you so much for taking time with us today. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm really excited to talk um, about your, your research and, and your work and your book and you know, context for people who are doing work, um, you know, in the realm of lean and continuous improvement and otherwise. But um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about your background, um, you know, from reading your bio, uh, it sounds like you you went from industry into academia. And I'm curious, um, you know, about that shift and, and why, um, why your interest in organizational behavior? Well, you know, I started out life as an engineer. So right out of college. I worked as an engineer, but I worked in a very peculiar setting. I worked as the chief engineer for architect inventor Buckminster Fuller. And so he was kind of a quasi-academic anyway. He uh, was best known perhaps for inventing the geodesic dome, which was Mm -hmm. what I spent most of my time doing was was, uh, sort of perfecting and developing some of the mathematics for geodesic dome design. Um, but really, Bucky Fuller was all about making a better world. I mean, his his mm-hmm. overarching theme was how do we use our minds to design things and solve problems that need solving to make life better for everyone. I know that's kind of a little bit overarching, but yeah. nonetheless, it was quite inspiring for a young person. He was... Um, exactly four times my age when I started working for him. So I don't think too many people have their first boss four times their age. Uh, <laughs> sure. I, I was 21 and he was um, you know, 85. And, um, and, and he was just a remarkably inspiring, generous, inclusive person. So, so that spoiled me. When he died, which he did very suddenly at the age of 88, I uh, decided to write a book about his work, um, which is called A Fuller Explanation. And in the process of writing that book, I think I registered in the back of my mind that the combination of writing and thinking and trying to make material as clear as it can be, and then periodically coming out to give a presentation or a workshop or teach a course, you know, that rhythm was just right for me, right? I, I, I liked spending time alone with ideas and I also liked coming out and trying them out. Mm-hmm. And yet when I finished with that book, I wasn't, I, I knew I was a sort of a teacher thinker, but I didn't have a field really. I didn't think engineering was my field. 
And so I got a job and I got a job with a, um, a consulting firm, a kind of a boutique consulting firm that worked in the organizational development, organizational change space. Mm-hmm. And this is what got me into organizations and into businesses, which had not been a, a natural interest or place uh, for me. But I found that the people working in mostly large companies where we did our work were incredibly curious and generous and eager to make their organizations better. And they got frustrated. They got frustrated by bureaucracy. They got frustrated by the pace of change. And so I became interested in those kinds of problems, in the, in the problems of well-meaning people trying to make things better and getting stuck and not necessarily knowing how to get unstuck. And somehow I got it into my head that I should go get a PhD. Not sure why that made sense to me at the time, but, but I thought I'd get smarter um, and I thought I'd get more able to be helpful. And it, it took a long time before I think I was either smarter or more helpful, but oh. <laughs> it turns out to be the right choice for me. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, these organizational challenges that, that you've researched and, and helped people with, um, I would put those in similarly in a category of problems that matter. Important yes. problems to make workplaces and people's lives a better place. So that's a high-minded but important goal. Yes, especially since so many of us spend so much of our waking time at work. Yeah, and and I, I don't know if you've seen studies as you know kind of other other people's fields, but I've, I've seen things that suggest that you know uh, you know a, a, a toxic, a dysfunctional if not toxic workplace can have you know serious uh, physical health effects on on people. So it's not just indeed um, and connections to yeah. happiness, yeah. right? Exactly. I mean, Jeff Pfeffer wrote a whole book on how work is killing us um, mm-hmm. through the stress and the anxiety and the, I think, um, toxicity of, and not physical toxicity, but emotional toxicity yeah. of many workplaces. Yeah. So then, um, you know, I saw in your bio that you, um, I guess, in between engineering and your PhD, you have a master's in psychology, correct? Yes, that's it. that turns out to be just something that happens to you in most people. PhD program. So I, I don't get any extra credit for that. I, as, a, as a PhD student in organizational behavior, when you satisfy your um, uh, okay. sort of master's level coursework and a, a kind of a thesis, master's level thesis, um, it's not called that, but you automatically get uh, a master's degree um, in, the, in the discipline. Okay. And so that wasn't, a separate, that wasn't a separate, no. separate stop in your academic journey, but but, I mean, it's, it's somewhat a rare combination, wouldn't you say, of you know, engineering and psychology together in someone's head? I think it is, and yet it it um, it goes together in my mind because engineers, you're drawn to engineering because you want to make things work, and and mm-hmm. you like the math, and you like the uh, you know the tangibility of it, and organizational behavior may seem very different, but researchers have to use math and and um, and fundamentally, at least in the field of management and organizational behavior, we're interested in figuring out what works. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that characterization. And I want to give a, uh, a thanks and a shout out to our, our mutual friend, Tom Ehrenfeld, uh, who's probably <laughs> listening to the episode for introducing us. And you might not know much about my background, Amy, but I'm, I'm also an engineer. Uh, industrial engineering. There you go. <laughs> uh, mechanical engineering. But I'll tell you, like, from my exposure, um, you know, to the work of W. Edwards Deming, who's sometimes labeled a statistician. I mean, in his work, he says mm-hmm. the most important thing for a leader is to understand psychology, and, and that's something I've, and I've tried studying even informally. And indeed, I mean, it's all, it's for me. It was really about shifting my interest from things, you know, structures to people. And it turned out I was just far more interested in people. And of course, people are far more complex as well. So we sometimes, you know, are banging our heads against the wall. But it is about, I think Deming is right. It's about people and having the emotional intelligence and the self-awareness to be able to thoughtfully influence people to engage in the right kind of work. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe before, and maybe this is partly a, a flip side to psychological safety. Um, 
But, you know, Dr. Deming, you know, uh, famously recommended that organizations eliminate fear and, and there's, there's, you know, uh, maybe different interpretations of what that means. And, and you write about the idea of fear, but, you know, how would you summarize to people, um, you know, why fear today? Why is fear a problem in organizations or why does fear hold organizations back? Well, first of all, I just, I can't help saying that I was aware of Deming's eighth point 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think maybe Larry Wilson who I worked with between uh, before graduate school uh, pointed it out to me, but I, you know, it's, it's the eighth point of drive fear out of the organization is kind of stuck right there in the middle of a long list of more technical <laughs> sounding things. And yeah. of course that jumped out at me and I didn't really give it direct thought very often, but periodically I come back to that and I think, Oh, I guess that's where it came from. I absolutely would give him, credit. But to me today, even far more than when uh, Deming was writing, fear, um, driving fear out of the organization is mission critical because more and more of the work is both fast paced and shifting complex. Right, So literally anyone can have something to say or might notice something that could matter greatly like the, the the vital input could come from anyone so driving fear out so that that vital input will be heard is is absolutely crucial and secondly we have more and more of an emphasis on innovation and innovation requires being comfortable raising wild ideas that might not be right, be, being comfortable experimenting in ways that are smart but might end in failure, and all of those things that just don't flourish when there is a high level of fear. And, you know, especially when, when you talk about innovation, I find it fascinating that, um, you know, there are some famous startups now defunct that, at least from books or, or different accounts, really sounded like extremely fear-driven environments without naming names or, you know, mm -hmm. come, come to mind for, for you. But, you know, it, it's, it seems it's ironic or it's troubling that an organization, whether it's in Silicon Valley or otherwise, could, could preach mm -hmm. innovation, but at the same time be um, creating an environment that, that seems to reasonably uh, stifle innovation or at least limit potential. I agree. And so it, it requires us to theorize well, under what conditions will an organization do well when it's being led in a, in a very fear-invoking way. And a few possibilities come to mind. You know, possibility one, the genius at the top really is a genius, right? And has such a clear vision of everything that needs to happen that he, usually he, he or she, um, can, you know, sort of divide and conquer and then tell people, you better do this or else, mm -hmm. and they'll do it and it will happen, right? So, so that's, that's one possibility. It certainly doesn't sound like the norm in most organizations that we know today. Sure, sure. Um, and then, of course, the other possibility is we don't know what the upside would have been had more and more diverse voices been in the mix. So sometimes we point to the success of some company ruled by fear and say, see, you know, mm -hmm. they did fine, but we don't know how they would have done with a more inclusive, more generative, less fear-based climate. Um, and we also, the third thing that comes to mind is oftentimes there isn't an obvious competitor, right? They're, they're really unique in a new space. And, and no one else is there, so they can almost do what they want and still succeed. In a competitive market, especially for, for, for labor, for employees, that mode won't work for long. Yeah. And, and to, to your second point, um, it seems like there are maybe some organizations that have been successful or at least still exist uh, in spite of that culture of fear. And it sounds like mm -hmm. you're describing sort of this this unwinnable thought experiment of, well, would they have mm -hmm. been more successful? It's unprovable. Right. right. It's unprovable. We don't have the counterfactual. Um, but, not, but now in your research and, and maybe talking, you know, if you can help share how you drew some of your conclusions about um, the, you know, the criticality 
of psychological safety. There, there were some fairly direct, um, is it fair to say, you know, kind of compare and contrast studies or at least looking within uh, mm-hmm. Google, for example, or was it primarily Google? Yes. Well, Google, the great thing about Google, <laughs> at least great for me, is that I didn't do that study. Um, oh, okay. Uh, uh, so, I mean, why, why is that Sorry for well, it's great because, yes, no problem. I mean, it, it, for me, it was great because they used my variable, which was published in an article, an academic article in 1999 in Administrative Science Quarterly, and which was titled, that article, my, my article was titled Psychological Safety and Learning Behavior in Work Teams. And it, it showed that in a, in a single Midwestern manufacturing company, teams differed phenomenally in psychological safety. And that difference was associated with more learning behavior, you know, higher psychological safety, more learning behavior, and with higher performance as judged by uh, outsiders, um, either the recipients of the team's work or the managers of the team's work, depending on what kind of team it was. And Google, in its famous project, Aristotle, um, you know, 10, 12 almost 15 years later, was trying to figure out what accounted for persistent performance differences across teams. They had a a sample of 180 teams, and no variable was really popping up to explain the variance until they looked at psychological safety and found that that um, was the single factor that explained the, the sort of performance differences in teams. That's really what put this concept on the broader map, I would say, as opposed to just Mm -hmm. the academic map. And it was enormously reassuring to me because I have to say my priors about a place like Google would be that these folks are so smart. Mm -hmm. You know, the team members, they're just not going to be holding back. They're not going to have the experience that most of us have of Gee, I'm not sure if I should speak up now. I mean, maybe maybe that won't be welcome. You know, they're not going to be reading the tea leaves the way um, many other people might be because they're they've gone to top schools. They're you know they got hired by Google, which is famously hard, and so on. Well, I thankfully did wrong in my priors mm-hmm. because in fact, with Google we had pronounced differences in psychological safety, and indeed they were predictive of performance. So it was, it was quite a, um, a stunning confirmation of something I'd been working on for a long time. Originally, my, my very early work in sort of stumbling into this concept was done in healthcare delivery in the hospital setting. And, and there I, wasn't, I didn't set out to look at psychological safety. I set out to look at differences in, in learning and performance. And the narrow focus of the study was, was um, medication errors, which, of course, right. are not a good thing. We, we don't want right. them. We, right. And um, just as we want in, in all of lean and all of quality improvement, we always want to catch and correct errors early so that they don't uh, continue down the process. And what right. I found, without having set out to look for it, was that there were really profound differences in reporting climate across units, even in the same hospital. So that in unit over here, people are sort of speaking up and going, wait, wait, let's check that. Is that the right dose? You know, and over here, you had people kind of hiding and putting things under the rug uh, if they could get away with it because it was mm-hmm. so threatening interpersonally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and in, in reading your description of that in the book, that, that jumped out at me as somebody who's worked in healthcare a lot and, um, you know, really, really cares about, you know, these issues of, of patient safety and, um, you know, re- reducing, preventing, eliminating errors and harm. Um, so I was at a hospital. I had an opportunity earlier this month to visit um, two hospitals in Japan. And, uh, and I'm sure yeah. um, you'd be pleased to hear what they're doing. So it's two different academic <laughs> medical centers, one of which has gotten very direct coaching from Toyota executives because their hospital is not mm. that far from um, Toyota City. And wow. you know, they, they, they've been focusing on, and, you know, they've been learning, um, you know, what you might call technical problem solving methods. 
Um, mm. But they are also focusing on basically creating a culture of safety. And the one physician champion for their, their whole effort very proudly showed a chart on screen that showed this dramatic increase in reported incidents. Yes. Viewing, they were, so I figured <laughs> yeah. you'd react that way because that, that seemed to be your... It's your wonderful. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's because the... They, uh, they, Peter, view, it as, they view it as wonderful. Yeah. I'm sorry. Good. Sorry. No, no, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, sorry, our, our excitement, <laughs> jumping up, right. shared excitement. I mean, Peter, this, but. Peter's saying he called that, I mean, that, that general phenomenon, or at least I'll describe this general phenomenon as the worse before better effect. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to really tackle a thorny problem like patient safety, the first thing that has to happen is that people have to become more willing and more open uh, to, you know, to talk about what's not working. And if you pull that off, that first part, then the data will look worse. Mm-hmm. They aren't worse, but they will look worse. And so the the fact that A, that was happening, and B, they recognize that that was a good sign um, are both tremendously good signs in their own right. Yeah, because, you know, they're, they're, you know uh, the other part of the story was that, well, you know, we, we can't apply these problem-solving skills we're learning if we're not identifying, if we're not openly identifying uh, the problems, problems um, to, to work on. Um, but um, so, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in healthcare or in other settings, I mean, I've, you know, without going into it, I've, I've when I started my career in manufacturing, I, I was in workplaces that were generally not psychologically safe mm. um, for, for frontline workers or even, you know, myself as an engineer or an improvement person. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's one reason yeah, you know, th- th- this is all personally interesting to me, but I'm I'm, I'm curious. Um, you know, what what's your definition of psychological safety? Has that definition evolved since uh, your publication in 1999? Yeah, so in 99, I defined it as a belief that the workplace is safe for interpersonal risk taking, like speaking up with a mistake, or asking a question, or asking for help, or offering an idea. Um, today, I think it's simpler and, and maybe it communicates more clearly to define psychological safety as a sense of felt permission for candor. Mm. And it, it's um, because I think often that other definition sounds a little academic. Most people don't think a lot about interpersonal risk. We intuitively are aware of it. You know, we intuitively will hold back if we feel threatened or anxious about what others might think of us. So it's, we're always going to err on the side of silence. Like, you know, nobody got fired for silence, for example. Um, So, but the, but to reframe it or at least re explain it as permission for candor, I think speaks more directly to what I'm talking about, which is, Mm you know, it's, it's, um, it's about believing that not only can I say what I'm thinking or worrying about, but it will be valued, right? That that's what people want me to do. Oh, it's interesting that you say felt permission because uh, the, the, the follow-up question to that is, uh, it seems like an important way to say it because leaders mm-hmm. in an organization might tell people, yes, we, we want you to feel safe to speak up. That doesn't mean people really feel. No. No, because leaders and organizations are often, they have good intentions, and I don't think they're lying when they say things like that, and they may be unaware or blind to the impact that either aspects of their behavior or aspects of their role have on others, and they can be blind to the kind of residual beliefs that people bring in from other companies or other, mm. other roles or other jobs. Sure. Kind of the, the past wounds and scars that. Exactly. I mean, the problem carry. is there's such an asymmetry. You know, if I, if I speak up and, and uh, it's welcome, great, I'll do it again. You know, but if I speak up and I'm humiliated publicly in front of my colleagues, it's, it could be a while before I do it again. And I've seen situations where, I mean, I think we can all picture, uh, and I've suffered through examples where the, the humiliation was obvious and overt. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think, you know, sometimes it's more subtle. I'm curious your reaction to a situation where, let's say, a well-intended 
kind, thoughtful healthcare executive, um, you know, very high ranking mm-hmm. organization who's not known to the frontline staff. Really, they don't. And, right. Um, and and, and they, they they come around, and I've seen I've seen this happen where you know they come around and they see a review of either uh, a kaizen improvement or a project and. Um, frontline staff, you know, have spoken up and they've helped test and implement something and they're sharing what they've done. And mm. the executives have to asking a question that they they might think is humble inquiry or mm. you know, a form of this, or they're trying to learn, or they might and then the question that comes out is something like, Well, why didn't you do such and such? Right. <laughs> and that ends up feeling humiliating, right? Right, right. right. And and um that might be an okay question after three others, right? Which would be, mm-hmm. oh, tell me, uh, help me understand why you did this, or how did you think about that, right? So you're, right. you're sort of asking about what they did do and expressing genuine interest in what you hear. And then, oh, I'm interested yeah. in, did you um, think about doing X? And, and uh, yeah. most of the time, none of us are pretty or are particularly aware of the, why we didn't do the things we didn't do. Yeah. Yeah, and and even when in in the the version of the question that came to mind, why didn't you? Yes, just inviting. Yeah. No, 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 I know. But right, but I mean, why didn't asked. you? Is focuses on the gap, you right. know? Sure. Right, it's basically saying the frame is here's a gap I see. What's the matter with you? Yeah, but you know, and I think there's a difference, or there's softer ways. You you, you used a little bit different language, where like you know, former Toyota mentors mm-hmm. of mine would say in in sort of reviewing problem solving or coaching, a favorite question of Toyota leaders would would be, well, tell me the three other things that you considered. And you know, I could see where yes. that question in a certain environment is not threatening, it's not dangerous, mm-hmm. it's it, mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with context, right? And it's such a respectful question if you think about it. Because it assumes you considered other things, mm-hmm. which is, of course, proper practice. Mm-hmm. And, and it expresses curiosity about what they were. So um, one other question I'm kind of thinking specifically to healthcare, where there are a lot of situations I've seen organizations, whether they're drawing on lessons from uh, aviation and, and, and the cockpits or, mm. or other, other high reliability um, organizations. Um, you know, I've seen organizations teach not just lecture people, they should speak up, you know, they're trying to create an environment, they're trying to teach people constructive ways, you know, of how uh, to speak up. And, um, but, you know, so there, there are sometimes events where somebody doesn't speak up and errors occur. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard people sometimes in these debates say, well, let's say, you know, the nurse now is getting blamed for some role in something. Right. You know, so I've, I've seen people get on a soapbox I'm showing, sorry, I'm asking a question, showing my bias, yeah, how I'm right, asking the right. question. But they say, well, yes. oh, you know, but, but they have a professional obligation to speak up. I'm like, well, I don't think it's that easy. This drives me crazy. Mm. And to be generous, let's just put it this way. Um, you can agree with the statement. And in fact, I suspect both of us do agree that one has a professional obligation to do such and such. Having that professional obligation doesn't mean it's possible to do it. So that's a, having a professional obligation is in a sense a values statement, but let's look at the efficacy of it, right? So the efficacy statement would be to what extent is it possible, realistic, easy, enabling for people to do it. And I think in lean and in healthcare in general, where you get really good outcomes is when there is both a felt obligation and a felt permission, one without the other is not enough. Right. Right. And so it's not, it's not as simple as, um, it, 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 you know, we frame the question in, in terms of um, why aren't people speaking up, which sound, and I, and, and that sounds, right. why aren't people coming forward with ideas? Right. It's like kind of a blaming judgmental way of framing it instead of asking, maybe pointing back at leadership. Um, what, yeah. what can leadership do to make it safe? And, and that's yeah, I mean, what you're looking at, right? The problem with blaming the nurse is that um, I think those with higher responsibility and maybe higher pay in some cases have have and should have a greater obligation to ensure that the climate is really genuinely enabling a voice. It's, it's not right to blame those who didn't speak up. It, one has to look inward first and say, Oh, what did I 
do to make it difficult? That's an uncomfortable thing for people to reflect. Right. 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 But this is, you know, we're talking about work, <laughs> not talking about your next dinner party. Mm-hmm. Right. This is, you know, you're at work, you you have a, an, a, an obligation to have yourself be a little bit uncomfortable when you're in a leadership position. Yeah. Otherwise it's just everyone else who has to be uncomfortable. That's not fair. Yeah. So in, in, in terms of working toward creating a safer or safe environment, I mean, does, does this necessarily start right at the top of the organization? Because otherwise, maybe middle managers are being caught in the middle, mm. uh, just the same as frontline staff for not feeling safe. Right. You know, it certainly helps when it starts at the top. I mean, it helps when all of us can look to the very top of our organization and see a role model. See a role model who is, is curious, who's passionate about improvement, who... Um, is acknowledging his or her own failures and shortcomings um, and owning it. You know, when the company has a failure, which we all do at various times, um, hopefully not big ones, they, they take responsibility for it. Like that is really good role modeling. And that has a, that casts a, a wide and, 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 and magnificent effect on mm-hmm. others. Um, and that said, Anyone, anywhere, you know, leading a team, heading up a plant, um, in charge of a, a restaurant and a chain can do things that makes their little part of the world, their pocket, um, as, as psychologically safe as, as possible. You don't have to wait. If you don't have one of those fantastic role models at the top, that doesn't mean your hands are tied in terms of making your proximal work environment as, as good and learning oriented as it can be. And, and if you do, you still can get pockets of tyrants here and there, mm. either unbeknownst or beknownst uh, to, to executives. So, um, so it's, it's not going to explain all the variants, you know, how, how the top acts, but it may explain some of it. Yeah. Um. But, you know, uh, one other thing you write about, and, and there's parallels to um, you know, language that, that Toyota uses, talking about um, humility and, and leading with humility um, as, as you know, an important part of this type of culture. Um, I, I, I think the, 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 can leaders become more humble? Or is some of that just ingrained or is that a, a, a roller coaster? Oh, Once I- humility <laughs> is lost, can it ever be regained? I think it can, and maybe I'm an optimist on this point, but I like to think of humility not as a trait, but as a skill. Mm. I think and whenever you, you know, if you pause to think about the pace of change today, the remarkable amount of, of knowledge and expertise that exists, of which each and every one of us can only master a tiny bit, um, it's a rational stance to be humble. You know, it's a terribly irrational stance to be arrogant right? because none of us know everything mm-hmm. and none of us has a crystal ball. So when, when one is sort of confronted with reality in that way, that it's even if I have a lot of confidence about what I know about this situation right here, right now, still stuff is, you know, coming at us, right? So I've got to always be humble in the face of that uncertainty and, and so I think that can be learned. I think people can be reminded to be humble in a way that isn't self-effacing. It isn't, um, it isn't to say I'm useless. It's to say I have knowledge and experience and I am almost certainly missing something. Mm-hmm. And with that recognition comes a, a deep desire to keep filling in the gaps. So I think this can be taught and I think it must be taught. Yeah. And then it seems like there's an opportunity then for follow-up coaching um, for yes. an executive coach to either pull someone aside and point out or, you know, uh, slip ups in, in their attempt to be more humble if they've made a commitment to that. Absolutely. Or just to, even just to let them know, because oftentimes coaching that says here, you, this, you, that you messed up, um, is you know it's it's it, it might be informative, but hmm. perhaps more powerful is to say, 
you couldn't possibly have seen the impact of that move or that in, in the same way I did, because I'm sitting on the sidelines. It makes it easy. And when you're in the thick of it, it's hard to see the impact. I can't see the impact I'm having right now on you or on the, on the listeners. Whereas um, someone who's on the sidelines listening and watching can see it better. So it's a gift to share with me the impact that I'm having that I didn't know I was having. Yeah. You know, for better or for worse, I can I can learn from the things that went well and I can learn from the things that didn't go well. So maybe along the lines of learning from things that don't go well in, in any uh, field or um, approach, there there are uh, misunderstandings. This happens in the context of lean. Um, mm. you know, go to hospitals and, and, and people somehow have developed misunderstandings about lean. But are, are there misunderstandings? Well, I, I know you, you write mm. about this in the book, but what, what's, what, yeah. uh, what's the first or the most important misunderstanding about psychological safety that comes to mind? That's easy for me to answer because it's become so clear to me, you know, in retrospect, the most important misconception is that psychological safety is about being nice. You know, that, oh, oh, Google, the Google study proved, and I saw this in an online digital article, the Google study just said, oh, better teams are ones where people are nice to each other. Mm-hmm. No. Right. Because the problem with that statement, and I'm not against being nice, per <laughs> <Sure>. se, <laughs> but the problem with that statement is in organizational life, nice often means we will say to each other's face what we think each other wants to hear. And then, you know, in the hallways or with others, I will say what I really think. And, and so, and, and in, in many ways, nice, therefore, means tiptoeing. And psychological safety is, if anything, it's the opposite of tiptoeing. So it's it's risk it's being willing and feeling that it's okay. In fact, it's expected around here. I'll err on the side of speaking up when I'm not sure. There's so that that's that's yeah. the, the biggest one. And probably the second biggest one is that, oh, okay, psychological safety means we can't um, we have to sort of dial back on ambition. We can't hold people. You know, we can't we can't mm. expect people to really stretch and and um, accomplish great things. No, you know, nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, I'm I'm suggesting that only with psychological safety can we stretch and accomplish great things together. Yeah, and you, you sketch that out very nicely in the book. Kind of a you know classic two by two matrix of um, kind of uh, aiming high and having professional safety as opposed to not exactly. aiming high. You, you called that comfort. being comfort. The comfort zone. Yeah. And I, I don't want to work in the comfort zone. I mean, on, there are days when I really would love to work in the comfort zone, but most of the time I feel much better about myself and my colleagues when we're really, you know, doing, getting challenging things done together. Yeah. Uh, and you, you talk about, um, you know, this misunderstanding, uh, about being nice. I, I think there's a parallel. I hear similar things when people talk about Toyota's principle of respect for people. And, you know, yes. I think what's been taught and emphasized to me is that, like, you know, respect, being respectful means sometimes challenging people because you believe in right. them. And that might not feel like right. being nice, right? being pushed to achieve. Right. And right? if I never, res- if I don't, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't challenge you if I didn't respect you mm-hmm. because I wouldn't expect to get much from it. It's so the very act of challenging someone is is an act of respect. And and then you said something a couple of minutes ago, you know, came back to some other language from the book where you talked about, uh, you know, within this context of um, psychological safety and respect, there is a time and a place um, to sanction clear violations. So I was wondering if you could talk about yes. that a little bit. Yes, I think that's the other, uh, you know, somewhere between a misconception and just something that we don't think about enough, which is um, oddly, I, w- I will argue that it makes the workplace more psychologically safe, not less, when misconduct or way outside the bounds behavior is treated harshly. Because if there are no negative repercussions from really doing the wrong things, then people don't know where the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, how can I feel safe? You know, if I know where the boundaries are, I can feel safer within those boundaries. But if, 
sort of anything goes, then, <laughs> you know, it's just a little bit of a, of a walk on eggshells type of environment, yeah. oddly. So I, I think of um, Bob Sutton's work, uh, the, you know, the, the no yes. angles rule. Right. Psychological safety shouldn't mean I feel empowered to be a raving a A total jerk. Yeah, yes, right. exactly. Um, right, exactly. Because that's just, <laughs> think, that's a stance that basically says the world revolves around me. Mm. Um, because it's a stance of being uh, inadequately aware of other people's um, you know, feelings and experiences. Yeah. So there's um, just comes back to the to, to questions around not just humility, but empathy, um, mm-hmm. being not a leader, not being a narcissist. Right, right. I mean, it couldn't be more important. If you think about leadership as the activity of influencing others, you know, to do hard things for the better, for the greater good, um, and you're an, an, a narcissistic jerk, that doesn't influence others to do anything but hide or the bare minimum. Um, so just a couple other um, questions before uh, wrapping up here. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, why it's important to make it safe to fail and in what context mm. failure um, is, is acceptable, if not mm. beneficial to an organization. Sure. So failure is a, an encompassing term, actually, because failure technically includes such things as small mistakes. You know, I, I failed to set my alarm clock the right way and I was late for work, right? That's a failure, but it's a mistake. It's a human error that um, all things being equal, we'd like to find ways to prevent, you know, sort of small preventable errors from happening. So that's 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 kind of one category, but way over on the other side of the spectrum are failures that happen when we engage in experimentation and thoughtful experimentation where we had a really good hypothesis based on existing knowledge at the time that, by the way, we hoped would work, but it didn't. It failed. And there was no way to get that new knowledge that we now have without doing it. So that's... You know, that's what scientists have to do all the time. And so clearly those are, you know, two very opposing meanings of the same term. And the latter, the failures that happen when we are in new territory with hypothesis-driven experimentation are mission critical uh, to innovation and to creating new value, right? So that's organizations need more of that. And when people are reluctant to engage in any kind of failure because the consequences seem so severe, they won't do that kind of failure. And sometimes you get a management style that just says, if we're really tough on people, you know, when things go wrong, Mm. then things won't go wrong. Mm. Yeah, but things won't go right either in terms of of innovation and new knowledge. So the first, um, you know, the first task here is to be discerning about the kinds of failures we want more of, and then the kinds of failures that we'd all love to work together to avoid, you know, the preventable failures that are in relatively known territory. Neither kind of failure should be subject to shame or blame, right? Both kinds of failure are worthy of, are learning opportunities and worthy of diagnosis and learning as much as we possibly can from them. So I'm still anti-shame and blame no matter, no matter what, but, (laughs) but um, it's not proper to call, you know, preventable failures or mistakes, um, good news for the organization. They're not. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of talk about failure. um, You're connecting it to innovation in the lean startup community Mm. of, you know, fail early, fail often um, before you try to scale, um, if you will. But, you know, then I've heard some people say, well, okay, wait a minute. Now this gets taken to an extreme and, you know, people are fetishizing failure and, you know, like there's, there's kind of a Mm -hmm. happy Mm -hmm. medium in that spectrum. I don't think it's a happy medium. I think it's more of a map, right? I think it's more of a, of a discernment. So I, what, what you really want and including in the lean startup space is smart failure. Mm. So it, it's just 
plain stupid to have a failure that one could have done a tiny bit of research and known in advance right. would not work. Right. right. So that's, I would call that a preventable failure, but mm-hmm. the person might not feel like it was preventable because they just didn't even do their homework. Um, so, and so that's number one, like first make sure it's a really good hypothesis. And number two is it needs to be the right size. And what does right size mean? It means it's big, just big enough to learn, but no bigger because then you get into the territory of wasteful. Yeah. And so you don't bet the farm on some product that you don't have any real idea of whether it's going to work. You, you test it out at the, at, with a with a pilot with a smart pilot that's designed not to succeed but to um, to break in 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 the right places so that we can figure out how to make it better. Yeah, and and I'm afraid when, when it didn't cut out very long, but but when I asked, is there a, a happy oh. medium? And you said it's more like yes. Oh, okay, that's an important bit. Yeah. What, what was that word? I mean, it was just that one um, that kind of cut out. It's 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 not a ha- it's not a happy medium. It's about discernment. It's about being smart and thoughtful in advance. So it's not is more failure good or bad or, you know, find the right sweet spot on that spectrum. It's what kind of failure and what kind of homework did you do and what size did you do it? Yeah, because that, that, so that that all came through. That broader message came through. So good. good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, if I, I took a picture. I travel a lot, um, and you know, I blogged about this. Where um, it, your story, or you're talking about, you know, uh, failure to do your research. Like there was a a phase where American Airlines redesigned the look of their signs at the gate, and like the text. It was all, I'm sure, very fashionable. You know, like the text mm-hmm. was very mm-hmm. thin. And it was just really, it was much harder to read. It looked prettier, but it was harder to right. read compared to the old version. And eventually, I may, I, I think, you know, they, somebody must have eventually uh, yeah. given enough feedback to say, like, I can't read the signs at the gates anymore. And I would, and I, when I wrote about it, I said, like, you know, the ability to iterate isn't an excuse to do good yes. design up front, which is what I hear you say. Spot on, spot yeah. on. And that was probably... I don't know how many hundreds of thousand dollar mistake right? Yeah. to, to roll out all that new font and then unroll out all that new font. And, um, you know, 10 people in a laboratory setting could have told you, Oh, <laughs> not going to work, but they might not have been an environment high right. in psychological safety. That's <laughs> true. And we just hired this, you know, expensive right. designer who says, here's the, you know, the best new thing. Uh, who am I to say, Hmm. Well, I'm not a designer, so I'll just uh, I'll yeah. just lay low. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, two two other questions here um, before we wrap up. One, I'm curious if there's a difference in the response that you get if you're uh, you know teaching uh, more seasoned executives versus a classroom with younger MBA students in terms of their reaction to the need for psychological safety and the role hmm. of leaders in creating that. Not really. Um, I mean, the, the, the one difference that, that I do see is that the, the, let's say, MBA students or younger students are immediately worrying about, yeah, but I'm not the boss, right? How do I get, now that you've told me this matters, how do I get it for myself? Mm-hmm. I mean, they aren't, they aren't thinking about the people who will be reporting to them as, as much as they're thinking about the layers above them. Um, whereas the senior executives kind of are a bimodal group anyway, some of them are just, eh, you know, this is interesting. And some of them are really seem to be experiencing an aha moment, right? That they, you know, that there's this um, awareness that this really is a risk factor for them, for, mm. for the, for their firms, you know, that there's a, wow, you know, I, there's this assumption that they know what's going on. And then when, when confronted with just the thought, it's not a surprising thought really, but you know, I might not know what's going on because the very power of the office might lead people to hold back. Hmm. And it's interesting. They frame it as a risk to the firm as opposed to like, Oh, well this epiphany, this is how I should be treating people. They're framing it in terms of, Oh, we're, we're, we, we could fail or we're not going to be as successful. Right. As we could. Be. Right. 
And I think that's okay because they're they're yeah. Yeah. It's not about them as people, right? It's about their ability to lead an organization to create value, which is a pretty challenging activity if you think about it. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it's 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 uh, probably helpful uh, to frame it in those terms mm-hmm. um, instead of you know kind of saying, well, th- this is how it should be, pointing to examples like Google or other companies to show, well, here's the data, here's the evidence. Exactly. Um, last question uh, for you here. I'm just curious. Since since your book was published, since the Fearless Organization was published, what what's the most interesting or surprising thing that you've learned about all of this since? If you could go back and magically insert something into the book. <laughs> oh gosh, um, that's a tough question. I think um, you know, I, I, I it's been such a journey. Um, you know, wrote the book. I felt the book was overdue. I know it was time to get this out there in, the, in an accessible format. Um, and then in the year since it's come out, I've, I've just had so many conversations with people like you that helped me make connections that just enrich my own thinking. So I don't think, I guess the thing about a book is it ends, you have to finish writing it, it has to get out there. <laughs> But the ideas keep, you know, moving forward. I suppose the thing that's most striking to me is the need for, I mean, I think I, in, in, at the end of the book, the last two chapters, I give practical suggestions for what you can do, you know, to make your organization and your team better. Yeah. Um, but now I think my, my idea of practical suggestions needs to be made even more concrete and maybe more, context specific, more industry specific. So as a result of this journey, I now see a kind of a, an opportunity for, or a need for more of a, more of a workbooks and playbooks. You know, how do you really, where do you begin? How do you get started? And, and what, what do you do? What do you do next? Yeah. Well, th- well, thank you. Thank you for, um, for sharing you know, reflections um, about that. I, I, I really do, uh, like the book very much and excited we had the chance um, to talk today. The, the title again, I um, encourage everyone to go find it is the fearless organization creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. Um, really important challenges and important things to be working on. Um, any, any final thoughts that you'd like to, to share Amy? Well, I guess I would just say, because we've been having such a wonderful kind of conceptual conversation that, the book is full of stories, and I think that's what makes it readable as opposed to merely academic, right? There's probably 25 case studies in it of, of companies that both have been missing, tragically, psychological safety, or who have worked hard to put it in place. And, and I think it's the stories that make it come alive. Yes. Yes. So thank you. Thank you for those stories. Thank you uh, for the book. And, and Amy, thank you so much for taking time to uh, be a guest here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.